special presentation of Midtown Conversations. My name is Danielle Debo, and today I am joined by Mike Morris, Member of Parliament for Kitchener Centre. Thanks for joining me, Mike. So nice to be with you. So we are actually in Victoria Park or Willow River Park, and we are, of course, on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and Adirondack neutral people on Block 2 of the Haldimand Track. And being in this particular park, I think it's kind of, um, I guess, poignant. There's been a lot going on in this park this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just across the uh, just across the street from the uh, Queen Victoria statue that has been a site of uh, debate uh, and I guess tension. And we're across uh, the water from an encampment that has been set up to kind of draw attention to some of the challenges with housing precarity that people have been experiencing in our community. And you've, of course, been very active in terms of your equity and social justice work that you've been trying to uh, push forward and and sort of keeping issues that are of most significant to residents here, taking that to Ottawa and making sure that those things are being voiced. So, you know, I just, you know, wanted to to start off with asking you... We are out on the street, so there is going to be some noise. <laughs> the city's growing so rapidly. So, you've, I've seen you basically everywhere this summer. What have you been working on? Where have you been? What have you been doing? Uh, trying to make the most of being home all summer and not having to go back and forth to Ottawa, which means, yes, absolutely, being at a lot of community events. I try to you know, go where folks already are to to hear about their experiences and stories and perspectives uh so so it's been great to see you throughout throughout the summer of course um but then also you know going back to knocking on doors over the course of the summer and hearing from people uh from all walks of life uh, that might be open to a conversation we've been doing backyard chats as well all summer um where there's a chance for you know over an hour and a half with a smaller group of people that might be you know, wanting to talk housing specifically or a wide mix of concerns and then also meeting with frontline workers and nonprofit organizations one of the reasons I ran in the first place was that I felt so frustrated as someone working in a not with a not-for-profit that there's only so much we can do if we don't have the rules set up in a way to make progress on whether it's housing affordability crisis climate you name it and so I think it's really important for peop- for someone like, like myself who is wanting to advocate for our community to be informed by those who are working on the front lines and, you know, and working alongside and, and, and with those who are precariously housed, um, living with disabilities. And so it's been a real gift, actually, that so many people have made time for those conversations over the course of the summer. I feel... Uh, inspired, but also equipped with so many stories to go back to Ottawa to try to have the you know the best fidelity to you know these hundreds of conversations I've had to be informed by to now push for the legislative changes we need to make progress on on the crises that our community is facing. And so, a year has passed since you were going door to door during the election campaign. Has what you are hearing from people changed at all? Well, yes. Uh, let's talk housing as an example. It's gotten worse. And I think a wider number of people are feeling the effects. 
I don't know there's anyone in our community who isn't in some way affected when we the reality that even you know nurses in our community who are telling me that they can't afford to live here and are you know considering or moving elsewhere I don't think it's possible to be buffered from uh, the crisis we're in with respect to the cost of housing in particular cost of living broadly but housing you know as a young person this is the first generation that the idea of owning a home is laughable. It's even, you know, can I afford to rent in this community? Do we have a community where talented young people feel that they can even rent and stay? And often that's not the case. And I think that, you know, thinking back to some of the conversations before being elected, it's actually, it's only gotten worse. Uh, whether you look at the number of her living unsheltered that's tripled over, over the, the last number of years, um, or the number of people, seniors living on fixed incomes who are sharing with me the amount of stress and anxiety. So not that that wasn't there earlier, but I think the number of people affected, the extent to which it's affecting them, and the extent to which it feels like the game is rigged, I think it's all increased. Yeah, well, and I think it's also really important when we're talking about the housing pro problem it's really two issues. There's housing affordability for kind of average people who just can't afford a home anymore. But then unhoused, that's a completely different issue. And, and they don't have the same solutions necessarily. And, and it's, it's, it's easy to conflate those two things. But when we're talking about, you know, someone who finds it hard to find a place to rent because they have a normal working income, that's one issue. But people who... Are, are really chronically underhoused um, and, and have a lot of risks associated with that. And I think actually uh, the cities in the region have been making progress on, they've been pushing forward on trying to deal with unhoused, that issue. Well, and it's, it's why I'm, I'm so vocal in terms of the role that the federal government has to play. Because you're, you're right, and what's also true is there is like a, a waterfall effect also um, when the housing supply is being turned into commodities for institutional investors to make money off of. And this is what we're increasingly seeing in our community, whether it's large pension funds or real estate investment trusts that are buying up billions of dollars worth of assets to speculate on their value, often renovating and then turning around and releasing at much higher rents. And so what we're seeing happen is we're losing affordable units in our community to those who are looking to make uh, the most money possible. And I don't think it's appropriate. I think we want, you know, if you want to make some money, go invest in stocks, but don't do it on the backs of low income and young people in our community. And so I think you're right. The municipalities have, have been trying to do more and... The federal government needs to step up when it comes to both the the dollars that can be invested. The federal government, of course, has the largest fiscal capacity of any level of government, and and you know there are some you know some say you know can government do anything at all? Well, the federal government did start to reinvest in co-op housing, for example, in this year's budget. It's nowhere near where we need it to be. Uh, it's nowhere near where it used to be back in the 80s. But co-op housing is one example of quality, dignified, affordable housing where those who live there have some autonomy over their their housing. And we need to get back into building cooperative housing. 
the federal government needs to put some money in. They've started to in this year's budget. I'm going to continue to push for more. But the other side of it as well is policies that the federal government can set. For example, those real estate investment trusts and pension funds, if they were paying their fair share of taxes, that might disincentivize some of what we're seeing in terms of the units being bought up. And so I think what's different today is some people will say, oh, housing is just a supply and demand issue. And that may have been the case, but it's different when the the demand is coming from large institutional investors. So you're not competing with another person. You're competing with a pension fund. And that, I don't think, is in our best interest. We need homes to be places that people can live for families, for young people, and for those who are precariously housed. And I, so I, th- I do think we need, we, need, we need both. We need the federal government investing more in building more affordable units, but also ensuring that the rules are set up in a way to incentivize a very simple idea that, that people live in the homes that they own. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's an issue that certainly people were very frustrated about this summer and, 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 and even in the spring when, when things were at their absolute worst in the region in terms of cost. Um, in terms of taking the pulse of, of people um, when you're out, how are people feeling about politics right now and the likelihood that politicians will enact policies that will actually help them? Are they frustrated? Are they disengaged? Well, of course. And that's that was true in the last number of years. Maybe the anger has increased and we're seeing in the news more and more events of you know, politicians being targeted in in various ways and that's worse for women it's worse for black indigenous and racialized elected officials whether it's online anonymously or in person or even in the house of commons myself and uh, in fact elizabeth may who sits right next to me if she and i see the exact same thing she will get heckled more than i will in the house of commons and i think we need to we need to recognize that misogyny that is persistent and, and yes, also in the general public, this sense of, um, of, of, of politics being inaccessible, uh, of, the, of politicians being only looking out for their own interests. But I think we also need to be mindful that it is possible to make progress. And there are some who are seeking to sow mistrust in our democracy writ large. Uh, and I think that is dangerous. Um, and I think it's important that we recognize that, that there are, it is possible, you know, that, that, that MPs were united in banning conversion therapy, for example, back in December. Um, that pushing really hard for a guaranteed income for every person with a disability. 40% of those living in poverty across the country, 1.5 million Canadians, are Canadians with a dis- disability. And we could lift them up out of poverty if we recognize that ODSP today is legislated poverty and that a guaranteed income is just a starting point. And, you know, started off with a petition, got 18,000 people across the country signing on to it, took that petition to the Senate and to the House of Commons, turned it into a letter that 103 MPs from all parties have joined now in vocalizing their support. And that then led to the government introducing a bill. Has it changed anything today in our community? No. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Uh, it's moving slower than any of us would like. Um, 
there's political, plenty of partisanship and political gamesmanship uh, to be had. But what's also true is, is we're further along than we were even six months ago. And so I think it's possible that if we have enough elected officials who are willing to be respectful and to work across party lines, that, that something like Bill C-22, uh, that, 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 is, that is framework legislation for the Canada Disability Benefit, that this is something that we can work towards. And for those listening, you know, you could email your MP and let them know that you believe that every Canadian with a disability deserves a guaranteed in- income, particularly if your MP is not already signed on to our letter. And that's our democracy at work, and, and I believe in our democracy. To your question, yes, a lot of folks are checked out. And so I think it's important for, um, for someone like myself to, to kind of walk the talk and to role model um, uh, an, an interest in, in, in actually getting things done. It's also why I believe we need proportional representation is because we're seeing, you know, part of what happens in the House of Commons is you have MPs playing to their donor base. They're not actually speaking to one another or even to Canadians, uh, to the general public. They're looking to get a clip to share back to their 200 donors who might have the most extreme view. And, and that works particularly well when we have this winner-take-all, first-past-the-post system we have. If we want more people in Ottawa who believe in treating the poison drug crisis as a public health crisis that it is, in taking science-based action on climate, the public is further ahead than, than politicians on this, in part because of first-past-the-post, of winner-take-all, of this idea that I, I, I think the 14 seats from Saskatchewan, every single one of those is a conservative seat. In Ontario, 18% of people voted for the Conservative government and they have all of the power. There's obviously something broken there in our democracy and I think if more people felt like their voices were represented and heard, we'd see more people voting, we would see a a more um, respectful discourse amongst politicians and so I think we need to be advocating. It's not like the most, um, you know, uh, attractive thing to be to be advocating for, and we start talking about different versions of proportional representation. But I think it's important that we don't let up. Uh, the current governing party promised it 1,800 times in 2015. This would be the last first past the post election. Let's not let them forget that promise that was made. Um, let's continue to, that fight for proportional representation. Also, I think those are some ideas for how we uh, offer. Um, to try to build up more trust in our democratic institutions. I think that's important. Yeah, well, and I had planned to ask you about political polarization because I, you know, so for good reason, we've seen a lot about political polarization. There have been incidents and therefore it's been in the news. But also, you know, when you talk about the percentages of, of people who have these really extreme views, it's as a percentage of the overall population, it's so small but and i guess it sounds like even our electoral system makes can the canadian public seem more polarized than it actually is because of the way that it it reinforces those polarizations but you're out talking to people in 
Kitchener Centre whether they vote green or not day in day out and do you feel like Canadians are that far apart in terms of their attitudes and their values and, and what they want to see for themselves and their families and their communities? Well, what is unique though now or not I'm not, not sure unique but escalating now is not only are we further apart but there's a greater sense that when we're further apart that we don't even talk with one another or that it's not possible for us to talk respectfully with one another and I do think to the point you're making I agree that that's reinforced by political partisanship. That, what is it? Like the Samara Institute has the research. On the, in the range of 97% of the votes in the House of Commons are along party lines. And we have euphemisms for this. People will say politics is a team sport. When someone says that, what they're meaning is that their elected representative is prioritizing the views of their political party higher than their community. And I think when we see that partisanship and then we have those same elected representatives who are speaking to that donor base with who might have that more extreme view, that's then what is getting um, inflamed. And I hear when I, I hear a particular uh, framing of a question in question period, I then see a dozen emails using those same lines. And then I knock on someone's door and I hear that same line back again. And so... I think, yes, to some extent, there's a lot that we agree on. There's a lot of people in our community who agree that housing is, needs to be more affordable and that more needs to be done by various levels of government to ensure that from those who are unsheltered to young people to seniors on fixed incomes, that, that we need more people to be able to afford to live in our community. There might be differences in how we go about doing it, and I think that's okay. What is What we need to be more mindful of is that it's okay to disagree. I really appreciate when I knock on someone's front door and the person might say, Mike, I'm disappointed with your vote on whatever the case. Well, thanks for letting me know. I'd like to hear more about your perspective on that. It's not a fairy tale. Not every person in the riding as Kitchener Center, which is an arbitrary political construct anyway, but not everybody who happens to live in the riding boundaries of Kitchener Center is going to have the same view. My hope is at least to bring forward that which we have the kind of most broad alignment on and also which um, I feel folks in this community have trusted me to advocate in ways that are in our community's best interest. As you might know, it's partly why I chose to run as a Green, is that it allows me to vote with our community's mind in mind first and foremost. And I think that's important. There have been some votes that, for example, there's only two of us in the Green Caucus, but Elizabeth and I have voted differently. Uh, and that's because the interests of, of folks in Saanich Gulf Islands are at times different than those in Kitchener Centre. And while our values of nonviolence and participatory democracy are the same, um, yeah, I think it's important that different communities' voices are heard. Um, and I'm going to continue to, to, to push for that to be the case and to let people know when we do see it. You know, there was a vote on poison drugs, for example, that would have moved towards decriminalization and providing a safer supply. And while the, the bill didn't pass, we did see uh, 14 uh, members of the governing party vote against the government with their community. And I, I think we should, we should celebrate that. That's democracy at work. It's okay for people in the same party to not agree about everything and to be able to speak to their, um, to the priorities of their neighbors first and foremost. So you're heading back to Ottawa soon, like 
I think, imminently. <laughs> and uh, what, uh, given everything that you've heard this summer from your constituents, you know, what are your big objectives for change? Where are you focusing your en- energies? So I try to focus my time where it is both a priority of our community and it feels constructive. And this is the disability benefit as an example where the governing party promised to do it three years ago. Now, some might, you know, rebuke back and say, wow, they've promised a lot of things they haven't done. Well, at least if it's been a promise made, there's a better chance that we can see follow through. And so I'm going to continue advocating on the disability benefit as an example, given the number of people in our community living with disabilities, allies of theirs, folks who want to see us address wealth inequality, and seeing that there's the possibility that that we could push for this to be in next year's budget that we can push for it to be debated on the floor of the House of Commons. There's now a government bill to be de- uh, debated. On housing, I'm going to be continuing to push for legislation and for budget measures that prioritize um, individuals owning their homes and being able to, to rent in our community as opposed to the institutional investors that our tax code seems to have been uh, 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 increasingly suited for. Um, and I'm going to be proposing reasonable measures that align with the rhetoric from the governing party that I think they could they could follow through on. Uh, mental health is another example. In the last election campaign, there was a, a, a mental health transfer promised from the federal to the provincial governments. And again, even when we talk about housing, we need we need to recognize that housing and mental health are interconnected and that, that we need more models like shelter care that House of Friendship is proposing to provide on-site wraparound supports. We need supportive housing in addition to affordable housing. And if the federal government, again, who has the most fiscal capacity, if they were to follow through on the billions of dollars for the mental health transfer, and, and then if the province then actually spends those funds, which isn't always the case, and we've got a great local advocate in Laura May Lindo, who is advocating for the provincial government to follow through on spending those kinds of funds, I'm going to continue to to advocate for that mental health transfer because we've seen underinvestments in mental health for decades. Um, So those are a few examples. Um, But there's even, you know, Highway 413 that's going to need a, a federal assessment and that's you know from a climate point of view doesn't make any sense why aren't we investing in high speed rail and be continuing to advocate for you know rail links between Kitchener and Toronto for science based action on climate it's it's been difficult when it comes to climate the last number of months but i think it's important that we have our voices heard that this isn't a time to add new subsidies in the last climate section of the budget the, the biggest investment was a tax credit for this unproven technology called carbon capture and storage, where the federal government wants to pay oil and gas companies to to, to, to invest in carbon capture. My sense is, if carbon capture is so fantastic, and oil and gas companies are making record-breaking profits on the backs of all of us as they gouge us at the pumps, let them invest in carbon capture, and instead, as a federal government, let's invest in proven climate solutions. I, I want to have, you know, retrofits to your homes. Let's, let's give every incentive for someone to insulate their attic, to work with Reap Green Solutions, to have an energy audit done, to build more bike lanes, to give incentives to EV drivers. We know 
no, none of these things are, are, are on their own, uh, you know, the answer. But we know there are better climate solutions. The climate crisis is not a technological issue. It's about political will and being honest with people about, you know what, for the workers in the oil sands today, we need to invest in their future. We need to invest in in, in, in good-paying, unionized jobs of the future and ensuring that they feel that they can count on the retraining that they're going to need. And so those are a few of those priorities I'm going to be continuing to ad- advocate for. And, uh, and I, I, I continue to want to hear from folks too. Um, so feel free to reach out, um, to book a conversation, a backyard chat, you name it. You can head over to mikemorrismp.ca. And, um, and and feel free to let me know what you think too. Because he does, even when he's in Ottawa, still have to, he comes back all the time. I well, see him all the time. Well, at home every <laughs> every weekend, but even a phone call, right? Yeah. Um, I don't need to be physically in our community to be to be hearing from folks. And it is it can be pretty toxic, and it's a bit of a bubble. And so I'd much rather on a weeknight. Um, be on the phone speaking with someone from our community hearing their story you know last night talking to someone at their door and the guy was saying to me Mike I don't care how you do it but my daughter can't afford to live in our community so I don't know what a real estate investment trust is but I want you advocating that she could stay in our community over the long term and I feel like a better MP when I'm informed by that and inspired by those kinds of stories on a regular basis and I think one of the challenges we have is that people assume and I remember the, the week after I was elected I was at the Schneider Creek porch party I'm at the Schneider Creek porch party every year no one's ever said thanks to me for being at the porch party all of a sudden it was like people expected that I'd, I'd stop showing up at these kinds of things and so I think just kind of tear down that that sense that, that, that elected officials are not accessible I think it's just the opposite that our democracy demands that we are if, if, if I'm going to stay firmly planted in, in, the, in the lived experiences and, and, and the realities uh, of, of, of what we're seeing in our community every single day. So we are in Willow River Park, Victoria Park, and as we said at the beginning of the show, lots going on, uh, an encampment across the water from us. Of course, Queen Victoria looking a bit worse for wear, um, has had some interventions over the summer, that statue, and a lot of debate about about what should be happening uh, with her and, and more broadly uh, in our communities. If we're back here a year from now, Mike, what do you want to be able to talk about that was awesome that happened over, over that change? What changed in one year? Uh, well, I would love to be able to c- come back and, and proudly talk about how we saw you know new legislation uh, that's 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 gonna gonna target some of these institutional investors and you know new investments in in deeply affordable units in our community, whether it's House of Friendship, the Working Center, organizations that are on the front lines, grassroots folks in our community at the Social Development Center, for example, to see more funding coming to those organizations, providing supports. Um, would would love to uh, to have a conversation about that. Also around Indigenous reconciliation, that we need more honesty. If, if politicians are going to say they believe in the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, well, then they got to back that up and follow through. Um, as, as a small example, one of the calls to action is to end mandatory minimum penalties, which these, these minimum sentences disproportionately impact Indigenous, Black, and racialized folks. And we saw a bill go through the House of Commons that got 
that repealed a small fraction. Uh, you know, wishful thinking, but to come back next summer and to say that, you know, to put forward legislation and see it move through that, that addresses calls to action of the TRC, um, that's the work I'm going to be continuing to, to, to do. And alongside municipal and provincial elected folks, I hope it means that um, that you know this view might be a bit different next summer because we have that many more affordable units getting built in our community, and then we have incentives in place uh, for people to be able to to rent affordably in our community. Thanks so much for taking the time to meet with me. Thanks again for the conversation, Dan- Danielle, for all that you do and others. You know. Programs like this are all volunteer-led, right? Um, and so these are the more nuanced, in-depth conversations that don't often get into the headlines of mainstream media. Uh, but it's it's organizations like Midtown Radio that ensure that conversations like this can be had. So so thanks for having me back on. Let's do this again next summer. Um, I'd, I'd really enjoy that. That was my recent conversation with Mike Morris, Member of Parliament for Kitchener Centre. We sat down and chatted in Willow River Park, Victoria Park, just before he returned to Ottawa for the fall session. You can hear more community conversations just like this one every Saturday morning here at midtownradio.ca at 11.30. And you can also listen to some of our past episodes at midtownconversations.transistor.fm. Or you can go to our website, midtownradio.ca, to see all of our on-demand programs. If you want to get in touch with us, reach out on Instagram or Twitter at MidtownRadioKW. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. Thank you.